Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about humanity The good, the bad, and the ugly I've been thinking about our public selves and our private selves. I've been wondering if it's true that actions always speak louder than words, and wondering if sometimes our actions are misleading as to our internal constructs. I've been thinking about values, ethics, and morality. I've been thinking about systems and expectations, our varied perceptions of what is right and wrong, and how even for individuals that center can shift. My guest today is Eden Collinsworth. She's a former media executive and business consultant and the critically acclaimed author of I Stand Corrected, How Teaching Western Manners in China Became Its Own Unforgettable Lesson. Her most recent book, Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business, she spent a year investigating the state of the world's moral compass. She spoke to scientists, techies, and pop stars, and plenty of others, the young and the old. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today, Eden. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to our discussion. It sounds as though you've been doing a great deal of thinking. <laughs> That's my thing, I've realized. One realized it, I don't know, just after law school, we were a group of friends together and we were playing some game like, what's your thing? Mm-hmm. And my husband was like gear and somebody else was motion. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I said, oh, I guess I was thinking. I think that's actually wonderful, quite admirable. So, um, you know, I'm, I'll follow your lead and try to be as thoughtful as possible. <laughs> no, you just be you. That will make the best combination. And uh, I think you are quite thoughtful from what you spent your, your year doing. I think that's pretty telling. I want to start with your note to the reader. You said, I am not an ethicist or a social scientist, and this is not an academic debate on the topic of morality, but an adventurous search for its modern day relevance. So I want to start with, did you find it? Was your search successful? And how was the adventure? So maybe we'll start with with did you find what you were looking for? Well, I, I certainly um, found what I didn't expect. And and there were times I found what I was looking for. And I think, um, quite honestly, often a, a, a kind of deep questions are more satisfying than, than, a, than a simplistic answer. And, and I think in this particular case, there are many, many questions and uh, not many answers, but one can become slightly more comfortable with, uh, you know, the, the landscape in terms of better understanding one's own perception of what is right and wrong or what's moral or immoral. Um, So, uh, you know, I I can't answer the question in any kind of forthright way, but it certainly was a great adventure. I was thinking about the movie, My Year of Living Dangerously, and wondered what you'd call your year of researching morality. (laughs) Well, I would say that um, I'm not quite sure it was living dangerously, but it certainly was expanding my my vista, and um, and I could I, I at the end of the year I had no choice but to better understand how interconnected we are, but at the same time how we are have siloed ourselves within our culture, and I think that that's what makes it an extremely perplexing period of time, that never have we been so connected, um, and yet we still struggle to to frankly successfully live with one another. Um, and I don't know whether that's human nature, but it certainly has been exacerbated by 
um, an awareness of all of these technological advances that uh, that hurl us forward in ways that most of us, you know, can't imagine, and and many of us, you know, don't, don't understand. So let's start a little bit with the the definition, because I think it's going to be pertinent to the whole discussion, every element of it, of of morality. And I'm wondering if you had a working definition to begin with, and then whether or not it changed during the year. Well, I have to admit that I approached this with some degree of ignorance. And so the first thing I did, um, having moved to London, was to join the London Library, which is, uh, you know, has... Uh, just endless stacks of the kind of books that, uh, frankly, are reach back for hundreds of years. So in various languages. So I had every opportunity to um, to better understand the definition of the word um, as it was given by people far more qualified than I. Um, but I mean, to to distill it down, the conclusion that I came to, which I think is operational is that morality is a personal set of beliefs. And ethics, on the other hand, is expressed in the expectations and and the sanctions defined and enforced by a a, a culture or a society. So uh, often you see that ethics and and morality come into contradiction. Um, And that's where it gets complicated and and um, uncomfortable making. And, it, and so, it turns out it matters what shoes you wear to the library, which I don't think any <laughs> reader would have ever anticipated. Oh, God, well, it, that's true. The library, I mean, it's extraordinary. It is, um, I, I, they have some 50,000 um, books in, you know, countless languages that go back, as I say, for hundreds of years, but they have absolutely no light source. Um, and so what they've done is they've, these stacks, which are floor-to-ceiling stacks of books um, that create these incredibly narrow um, walkways. The walkways, in fact, are not floors per se. They're perforated steel you know, structures or platforms. And so if you wear anything other than flat shoes, that you, you just break the peel off. And also you need a, a small flashlight to find your way to it. <laughs> To anything, but I mean, it's it's it feels like it's out of central casting. That said, it's an incredible resource. It's known as very much a writer's library, and um, and so that's where I spent my first um, several weeks is to understand where to start this search. And it and you're absolutely correct. I started logically with the definition of the word, but uh, th- but those two words are although they're short, they're important, and they are exceedingly different. So, um, for example, ethics um, come into play if one is a lawyer in America, um, one's ethical obligation is to defend to the best of of his or her ability um, the client, even though what that person has done offends the lawyer's own moral sense. And so there's an, an example of many where one can have a a personal set of beliefs, which is one's morality. And then one comes up against ethical restrictions, which are are very much set in place um, in a particular time within a certain society. And do you feel there's an important distinction to be made between morality and mores? If you define mores as an offense against social mores, um, customs, conventions, ways of life, tradition, practices, habits. Well, that, uh, without being dismissive, that's a word that covers 
uh, as you have said very accurately, they're the customs. Um, and that also is relative. So, for example, I've done business in in Dubai, and and so the custom there, the mores, is for a woman to cover herself, her arms and legs, and um, and her head, most especially if she's going into a, a place of worship, um, a mosque. On the other hand, that that is a cultural expectation in terms of attire for women in one country and not very far away it's a restriction that's so severe that if you don't do it in another country um you know you're stoned to death or something extreme so um you know uh, that also is relative but it seems to me that mores are more uh, refer more to customs um, then, in fact, to uh, a, a set of expectations that are kind of internal. And the reason I ask that is because I wondered, reading your book, if if throughout history and in our current history, if somehow that doesn't get confused, the idea that mores are just that, and that mm-hmm. there then gets attributed to them a moralistic element that maybe doesn't belong, but that throughout it, it the patterning, it somehow becomes um, attached a moral value to the behavior, where really it was just a more. Well, that's true. And, I, and it's very difficult to break, uh, if you wish to call it a habit. But once something is in place, it's extremely difficult to reverse it. Um, it takes time, but I mean, if you if you look at you know what I call organized religion and their scriptures, um, they are. If one tries to grapple with it literally, one gets sometimes very dispirited, <laughs> and 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 on the other hand, one can be actually very elevated by it. But it's many times they're not logical, and yet. Uh, in terms of instructions, and yet um, there they are, and they've embedded themselves in a culture. And so I think, I mean, it's interesting. I um, one of the things that I that, that I've continued to to wonder about and think about is why um, women's rights have not um, accelerated as quickly as gay rights or you know other um, issues that have to do with you know, what are conceived to be civil rights. And I, I don't, I can't, you know, it's it's baffling to me, not because I'm a woman, but because in fact, it seems illogical. Um, but if you look back at religions specifically, um, you know, that that is a message that has been conveyed over a very long period of time. And um, it's difficult somehow to, to think that that has not woven itself into the fabric um, whether you wish to call it mores or um, societal, you know, attitudes, I think it's the same. Which then, as you frame that, can then have moral implications. And so oh, I think absolutely. it's such an interesting point because if you go back a little further than far back in history, you go back to when there were mainly women goddesses that were in power. And so then you have to think, well, that it was this major shift, although it may have come about um, over a long period of time, and a really a shift in power. And I think we'll talk a little bit about power dynamics later and and the, the relevance that they have within a society's culture and then also in an individual's um, behavior, whether or not to act in a, in a stance that's in line with their internal moral structure and maybe that mm-hmm. of, of the opposing moral structure of the system that they might be in. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, i.e. maybe the business elements of your book. So I wasn't going to talk, I'm going to go backwards now from what I had on my outline. Let's dive in and then we'll come back to a deeper discussion on morality in general. But let's sort of dive into your year and your approach to it. You started at the library and it looks like you had sort of topics in mind that you were going to investigate as far as um, fidelity and sexuality. Yes, yes. And well, warfare, I mean, it's such a, a a broad subject, and as I have indicated, literally, I think it's on the one of the first few pages of the book. I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a social scientist. I don't have advanced degrees um, or credentials. Um, and of course, what I faced at the library, among other places, was a constant reminder that. Um, you know, this was a subject that other people had addressed. <laughs> and uh, mo- many of, uh, of the books were academic. But it seemed to me apparent almost immediately that in order to, to grapple with the topic uh, for my own sake, I had to think of certain kind of themed areas. And so I was interested specifically in what our modern morals or what, you know, where I would find them or what, what they constitute. And so, you know, it kind of falls into categories of business, uh, politics, um, sex, uh, technology. And so I, um, you know, I approached it rather systematically. And what I tried to do then once I realized, well, I, I would be free, I'd be more free and flexible working within the restricted kind of silos, as opposed to kind of slurbing everywhere. I, I made a point of trying to have these discussions and interviews with people who one wouldn't expect to speak uh, on that particular subject. And so, for example, um, I was, for, for my own sake, I was trying to understand whether or not there was a correlation between character, what we call character, and morality. And by happenstance, I then found my way to somebody who actually had murdered two people um, and had a discussion with that man. And he, in fact, made that issue, he clarified that issue in a way that I, I couldn't have imagined. Um, so, and I'm hoping that the, the, the reader feels the same as you're, as you're reading through these. The, the book, uh, you know, often people's stories are far more remarkable than anything you could possibly create in fiction. And so I, I made a concerted effort to find people, some well-known, others not at all known, um, many who have uh, made moral choices. Some have maintained a status quo, others have defied it. Um, and these are, so it's the, I've gone from one story to the next under the um, auspices of these themes. Another example in that is your discussions with Major General Poss, another person who maybe you wouldn't think would be the first person to speak to about morality. And he made a statement saying, our technology has caught up with our morality. Has, and I'm wondering, what did you think about that? And do you think it has surpassed it? You know, are we um, morally mature enough to handle the technology that we've now created? Well, he was speaking very specifically about warfare. So, um, and, and that is his, his, his position, not surprisingly, and I think it's actually a thoughtful one. But, I mean, I, in this particular case, what I was addressing was 
whether or not there was less or more morality um, to uh, addressing an issue with a drone strike, I mean, which is fairly finite and and very specific as opposed to sending in uh, people who are in harm's way. I mean, this is a situation where, um, you know, the operative is in a, in a, in a bunker, usually in, you know, Nevada or something. And, and, and they have been following their target possibly for days and have this kind of peculiar um, connection and uh, in terms of the dailiness of the, the life of somebody they're going to, to kill. And um, the point is that they've focused on a person or a group of people, and there is what they you know, refer to as um, collateral damage, in other words, the, the, the killing of innocents. But um, the General Paz had made it very clear that, in fact, it lessens that uh, possibility and it's and it certainly keeps the operative out of harm's way and so in that in that way um, it is a a more moral um, weapon of war than um, you know ground to ground um, combat or even an airstrike where a plane can be brought down so he he had a very um, specific perspective that had to do with the question that I asked of him. Um, I think that generally speaking, to answer your question, no, I think we're many musical beats behind technology in a moral sense. I think that technology will move ahead regardless of uh, the arguments on both sides of whether or not we should be doing this or doing that. And it's um, and you see it across the all of the topics that I've covered and, and then some, whether it's medicine, reproduction, sex, you know, every area of our life now has been um, impacted by these profound changes in terms of uh, technology. I want to talk about the, the point you make there and also with the conversation you had with Major General Poss. In the idea, Dan Ariel talks about, um, has done a lot of research on honesty and cheating and situational <laughs> cheating. And one of the ideas that he's come up with, um, and not just an idea, he, he's proven that when we are reminded of moral expectations and our commitment to those, we act better. And when there's a disconnect with mm-hmm. the object of our cheating, when it's sort of somehow removed, we may not act as in line with our our, our morality. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about in both of those situations, both in warfare and a drone warfare, where, yes, you can cast it as being a more moral um, behavior. And then I, I guess it depends on who we're looking at, because then you think of the person who's actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And for them, they are more removed. And in those situations where we're more removed from the person who we're acting upon, I'm wondering how you have come to discover that that may affect our morality. And especially this is in all sorts of technology now, as you had said, mm-hmm. with um, our relationship to the screen. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Well, you're, you've covered a lot of ground there. Um, in terms of the, the drone attacks, I don't think, my sense is that the operatives, in fact, are not, I mean, they, they suffer from post-traumatic syndrome. They, you know, are often guilty. So I, I don't think anyone, by the way, gets away scot-free when they kill someone. Um whether or not it's more removed or less removed than dropping a bomb from a from a plane, 
where you don't see your, um, you know, your, the victims. I mean, that's fairly abstract. Um, I'm so- going to interrupt you just for one second, because absolutely, you just had said that this person actually has spent hours and hours mm-hmm. and hours being very intimately involved with this yes. particular target. Yes. And I think, I mean, what was fascinating for me, uh, uh, and very sobering, quite honestly, was to be, it wasn't just General Paz, but it was actually the man he reported to, a General uh, Mosley, um, Buzz Mosley, who ran the Air Force under both um, Clinton and um, Bush. And, um, and what was conveyed to me, in no uncertain terms, is that there is literally a ladder of a chain of command and a kind of ladder of decision making. And so General Paz was able to make decisions when it came to what is called collateral damage or the possibility of it at a certain level. But when there was an increase of that uh, chance, then it then it went up to General Mosby, Mosley, who then would sit with the president. And so it, it was, ext- you know, it's a very systematic process I mean, what what's interest, What was interesting to me was, in 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 the best efforts of what constitutes morality, the system is trying to work within those parameters. The really interesting question for me is, you know, when you are on the ground, or or you know, even if it's by way of social media or uh, people blowing themselves up, or you know driving over innocence, um, which which now is happening more and more with cars or trucks. Um, the question is, how, I mean, how do you hold on to or do you hold on to your Western values or moral system when in fact the enemy um, obviously doesn't, not only doesn't share that value system, and in fact is intent on killing as many innocents as possible in the name of a cause. And so, I mean, all of these issues, no matter what the technology is, are really quite far-reaching. Um, and I, technology allows us to remove ourselves to some degree, but not, not entirely. Not, I mean, you know, it's, it, these, these horrific terrorist attacks have occurred on the ground in very fundamental ways. I mean, in London, you know, when you... Where, where it's extremely difficult to get a hold of guns, you know, people are using um, machetes and knives um, and, and cars that, you know, can mow people down on a bridge. So, you know, it's, it's an extremely uh, bifurcated world where on the one hand there is incredibly sophisticated technology that allows you to, to um, strike hundreds and thousands of miles away from a bunker um, to you know the uh, on st- on the on the street realization that anything can happen to you as you're you're simply trying to get home, so it's it's a very these are very um, unsettling times. We have many questions, and I, your comment on that um, reminded me of something that one of your students said, kind of later in the year. Uh, I, I know a friend of yours had had suggested that maybe you speak with a younger generation about what their positions were on morality and how it compared with yours. And one of your students, I'll call them Stuart, said, mm-hmm. "Mankind should have learned by now that you can't be an absolutist when it comes to morality." And I'm wondering if you would characterize yourself as an absolutist, or if you would have at the beginning of the year, but maybe not at the year's end well um you know i am of a certain generation um my parents 
believed that morality was a rule book and some parts of that rule book were implicit and, and understood and other parts were, you know, judged on whether or not you're civil and, you know, uh, uh, and, and the fact is that that I, I, I've now got a son who's in his late 20s and, I can, and he's completely decent. But the difference between us in terms of our moral reference points are, are that my, my moral values were instilled by my parents. And I, I can't claim that that is entirely the case with my son because his values to a large degree have been shaped by the changes that have occurred within his lifetime. They, they've, as I, you know, forgive me for repeating myself, but they are really profound changes. And so I guess my point is that I will always be, I will always err on the, the, the end of, you know, be, being moral, morally absolute. <laughs> and as a result, I have a tendency of being slightly more judgmental than perhaps I should. Um, my son and, and his generation and the generations below are, have a, have a, a, a more flexible um, uh, concept of morality. I wouldn't say that it's porous, but it's, it's more flexible. And that is what this the young, this young man um, reminded me of. They, I'm, my reference points are set and 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 very clear to me. Um, there is no kind of gray area. And what that generation has grown up with is 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 a great deal of gray area, and they're comfortable with it. And so um, I think therein lies the difference. It's a it's a it's not less of a morality, it's a different, a different kind of morality. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with institutional reference points of what is right and wrong. I mean, the, the church, I frankly think it's lost its um, plot uh, in many cases. Um, and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful because I admire anyone who's religious. I think that it's, it gives solace and strength. But at the same time, I think it's, it's scrambled to 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 keep up with the changes and it's not done a particularly effective job and so what has happened is the that, that generation even though they can be spiritual are not are not necessarily um, adhering to the institutional rigors of of what is right and wrong in, in terms of what the church um, has insists upon and so you see that more and more. I mean, during the course of the year that I wrote the book, it happened that um, Ireland, which is a almost, I was going to say predominantly, but it's almost an exclusively Catholic country, was the first country to legalize gay marriage. Um, and that was completely stunning. I mean, it shocked the the church. Um, and I'm not surprised. But that that's happening more and more. And um, I'm trying to think of another example that's, you know, where you were where you see the difference. Well, I'm thinking about um, one of the people you interviewed had said when talking about technology and its influence, the point is we are in the midst of a tech storm of possibilities, and now is the time for conversation about which values we're putting into place right now. And maybe that's one of the reasons that you were inspired to take this year and do this, because, you know, having your son being a millennial, you were seeing the real distinction between the generation and the way that you grew up and the way that you your relationship with morality and his and although you're both moral people it's in very different ways 
Well, that's true, but it's not only generational, it's cultural. So really what prompted me to consider whether or not my moral values were germane in my own country, because I've lived, my career has moved me around, you know, I've been very peripatetic the last 30 years especially, and so I've lived in many, many countries, not, not my own, and the, um, one of which has been China. And so the year or two that I've spent living in China, I've been in and out for the last 30 years, but I, lived, I moved there to, to write a book for Chinese on Western business practices, and I worked with a Chinese publisher. And for the first time, I lived among the Chinese as opposed to coming in and out as, as a Westerner, uh, um, you know, staying in a, in a hotel. Or, and and it, was, it was really eye-opening because it became very apparent to me during the course of that year um, that my values were, were simply not the values, you know, that were shared within that culture. And if you think of the, the fact that one in every five people on the planet are Chinese, I mean, if, you, if you're thinking specifically of, their, um, of, of the size of their population, you're real, you realize that you're outnumbered. It's just, it's just that simple. And so they... Uh, you know, they're operating not from what the Westerners would consider a Judeo-Christian sense of right and wrong or fairness. They are, they are in fact, operating in the gray area. So we call it moral relativism. And they would say that, well, there are many ways of being right and not many ways of being wrong. And there are, you know, one has to consider the set of circumstances. So theirs is a far more atmospheric, um, you know, attitude. And I felt myself lost in in that fog at times. So well, it's it's not just the it's not just generational. It is also cultural. Well, also in in China, having a very different relationship with honesty and um, with one another. And yet, I don't know that in conversations they will expect what each person has said to them. They don't necessarily expect that to be the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Oh, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And, and, and yet there's also an Eastern. a cultural reason for that, right? In, in the in the yes. Maoist revolution, if someone came up to you and said, oh, so, you know, are you a doctor? Oh, no, no, I'm not a doctor. I'm a farmer down the road. I have my plot yes. for well, survival. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely, I know that's absolutely right. I've, I've, I have friends my age who are, are in a, and business associates who were children during the, the Cultural Revolution and they saw their parents executed or dragged off um, and their houses torched. And, and so what you, what you come to understand very quickly is that you don't ever share your feelings and your thoughts, and you don't trust anyone except your family members. And so you see that now in business, uh, they are going through growing pains in terms of their economy. And it's interesting to understand, you know, from a granular level, the challenges, because, you know, there is a very um, strong anti-corruption a position taken by President Xi, where you shouldn't be giving contracts to your cousin, but on the other hand, that's all they know. And so there was a period of time where the, 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 the government realized that not much was happening because 
frankly, nobody knew how to do business uh, outside the, the, you know, the realm of their family. In other words, who would they go to, um, you know, if not their cousin, because that's the only person or the immediate family, because that's those are the only people you trust. And so um, you're absolutely right. There, th that's part of it. But then there's another part that's crucial, and that is the idea of saving face. And so you don't, uh, even if there are issues or you have a problem, uh, you, you simply don't express it because you lose dignity. And, and dignity is a far more valuable commodity in China than one can imagine as a Westerner. Um, it's, it's extremely important. Um, and so all of this, you know, the, all of these aspects are cultural. And, uh, you know, keep in mind that the Chinese have been around for 5,000 more years than the rest of us. And so it's, it's not, I mean, nothing is taken for granted. It's, you know, well, it's an it, ancient culture. And even within our culture, we may have subcultures, for instance, business and, and especially Wall Street business, where the, a lot of the things that you're talking about with China seem to be much more in line with what happens within that industry and that culture, as far as sort of a different code of um, of for for power brokering, survival, uh, success, and so that their views of morality may shift a little bit. And I want to, because I'm guessing that this must have washed over you and over you and over you within that year, to really hone. You know, where does morality lie? Um, are we born as these moral ethical creatures? Uh, is it learned? Um, and to start that conversation, I want to just set a framework from um, moral psychologist Jonathan Hayton. He says there's sort of five best candidates as to what's written on the moral mind. Harm care, fairness, reciprocity, in-group loyalty, tribal drive, authority, respect, voluntary deference, power, love, purity, sanctity, and sort of sets it out that, that you know, we can also put in there Carol Dweck's the idea of mindset and that people mm -hmm. come and or develop different ones. Um, and some may be more open uh, mm -hmm. individuals and others closed. And that a lot of the arguments about morality, we might be able to all agree that on things that affect um, harm, care, fairness, reciprocity. And, and we'll talk a little bit later about how that's even shown in, in many animals. But that where things get complicated is this in-group loyalty and whether you're for authority and respect or you're for freedom and, and openness. Yes, yes. Well, you see that across the board, regardless of the culture. Um, I personally, after having spent a year exploring the topic and, and thinking carefully you know, in terms of my own beliefs um, that shifted to some degree. I, I don't believe that human beings are intrinsically moral or immoral, and that being one or the other depends on our decisions and our actions. And um, it's interesting, sometimes you, you, I mean, one of the people I interviewed was a man who, a uh, remarkable man who as a child survived not one but two Nazi work, work camps um, in Poland and, and one in Russia. And um, there was no, I mean, what we discussed was what happens to morality when there's no free will. And so he, um, in order to survive, it was all about survival. Um, you know, it, it was the relationship between morality and freedom and, and whether you know, moral judgments can be made at all when one has no control over one's life. Um, in order for, for this man to survive as a boy, um, 
he became very adept at making instant judgments, not only about the guards who, who tortured him, but also about the fellow inmates um, who were equally intent on surviving. Now, whether or not that entailed becoming an agent himself of, of the cruelty that had surrounded him, only he could say. But there, there was no doubt in my mind that what it required him to, to do is to become good at being less moral for that period of time. And so there's also an example of, you know, this was a man who was completely upstanding moral and is today, but during that period of time in order to survive, that's not who he was. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Eden Collinsworth, and we're talking about morality, her recent book, Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM drop-in radio, listener-supported. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Eden Collinsworth. And Eden, I want to talk a little bit more about that idea of, and I guess for now it's it's not, um, I'm not proud of this this term, but well, let's call it situational morality, because mm-hmm. um, it's what I've got at the moment. And and I was thinking a little bit when I was reading that part of your book, and I was thinking about, well, you know, I know he felt he was not acting moral, but I thought in that circumstance, and I was thinking about um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I was thinking there there might be a relationship there, that when when where we are on that mm-hmm. is just the most base survival. And not only that, but we are threatened. It's not just we are alone trying to survive, but someone is trying to hampen our chan- dampen our chances of survival, mm-hmm. that that may what is considered moral in that situation may shift. Well, it does. And it and in retrospect, it in all probability becomes immoral behavior. In retrospect, it can be, it certainly can be designated as such. But I, I, I think it's, it really is not a question of morality. It's a question of survival. And so um, I, you know, it's not just, although it's, that's certainly a very dramatic and hideous reminder of, of the depths of, you know, deprivation that the people can inflict to the Holocaust. I mean, you, you, after having lived in China, I became reacquainted, frankly, with the horrors of the Cultural Revolution and the, what was ironically called the Great, Great Leap Forward, where, I mean, it's just staggering number of people who were, who were starved during a period, relatively short period of time, who starved to death. And so, um, you know, it's every, I'm afraid every culture has its, um, you know, moment or, um, or time of, of great darkness. And, and I think that it's, I think it gets down to survival. And um, in that way, whether you call it a situational or, or not, it's, uh, I think that people do what they need to do to stay alive. Um and it's that simple. I'm wondering uh, you know. if you had to drink a lot of tea, lie down a lot, and have a little rest oh, after some God. of these well, it's just, conversations yes. and topics. Well, I mean, most of them were uh, were very uh, were very thoughtful. I mean, it, it certainly gave me pause, and some were dispiriting, and others were actually quite, um, you know, quite hopeful. And I I remain hopeful, and and I'm I'm completely convinced that. Um, you know, we, we find our way back to the middle ground. Um, 
I think that actually uh, we're seeing some of that now. It, it felt uh, a year ago kind of shocking and dis, you know dismaying and and hideous and awful. And and I think that you know we, we, the my my sense is always that no matter how you feel and how it feels, the fact is that we still draw a line around what is acceptable and what's not. And I think the great I know for me the solace that I take is that I see now this last year people uh, being more determined to defend that line and to push back. Um, and to insist that no, that line can't be crossed, or this is what happens when you cross it. There's pushback, and and um, and so I think that that is very hopeful. So on that hopeful note, I want to mention uh, Franz de Waal, who did research with with um, a variety of animals. And he said, humans are more cooperative and empathetic than given credit for, as is the wolf. Um, and he did studies that, and the, it's that the studies they did are really um, fun to watch and and enlightening and and um, uplifting, and showed uh, in um, primates in in monkeys and in um, elephants pro-social tendencies and. Um, tendencies for reciprocity and fairness and empathy and consolation Mm -hmm. and cooperation and that they innately care about one another Um, and they cared even he did one study with monkeys where one was there's a a food preference um, and one was given grapes and one was given like not very good food and Mm -hmm. you know then there was sort of a a a riot because that was unjust and (laughs) when they they weren't given the the, both given the grapes you don't often see that even on the grade school level. So, so right, right. So among, I think it is encouraging humans, yeah. because it, it says that then we can look at what are the factors then that, that may shift us in not being as cooperative and as empathetic. Um, well, I, I mean, I think my sense is that um, one has to be cooperative. I don't mean to take the cynical um, view, but one has to be cooperative to live within a society. And we are social creatures, as are most animals. And so um, I agree, it's, it's heartfelt to see, you know, these images and to be to read about these, you know, incidences, uh, you know, in the family kingdom or in the um, animal kingdom. But I, I think that there is also an impetus to to cooperate and establish what is fair and what isn't fair. Um, I mean, any if you ask any three or four year old uh, child, they know exactly what fair is. Um, and so it's not as though uh, it's, it's an obscure issue. The question always is, I mean, we are also intrinsically selfish creatures. And so you need that push and pull. I mean, the p- people who are selfish um, by nature and remain selfish uh, if they are not working with in a collaborative way or, or they're not forced to to be part of some larger entity actually are more successful but who among us can operate on on our own um, and so um, you know there is when I I had a wonderfully interesting discussion with Margaret Atwood and she was of the mind that you know the what what is required is both you 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 both you need both that selfish gene and also the gene the altruistic gene that um reminds you that you have to work within a group 
There was some uh, research done by Paul Zak, a neuroeconomist, about uh, what he discovered to be the, or, or validated to be the moral molecule, oxytocin. And he said there's 5% of people who don't have this released um, and that that might explain some of the sort of very horrific behavior. And that maybe with others who follow along and, and participate, um, they, that struggle is happening from within. And we can start to look at sort of what are the elements that will sway people to behave morally or, or immorally when it, there is an internal struggle going on. Um, mm-hmm. A couple of, of scientists have shown that it, it, even just taking that moment of a break within um, to, to think about your behavior. Mm-hmm. So to, to either be reminded by something out, outside yourself or internally, yes. to remind yourself to think about um, how does this fit within my moral framework? Well, a few. I have a few thoughts in that regard. First, uh, one of the people I've interviewed for this book is this completely remarkable neuroscientist, an American actually, who's at Oxford, who has a lab, Molly Crockett. And in fact, what she's um, researching, you know, with 10 other colleagues, I think, is the implications of what is called a morality pill. So I guess my question to you is, it's a rhetorical one, but, you know, an interesting one nonetheless, and that is that if you, if there is a pill that in fact moves you biochemically to more moral behavior? Is, is it moral, in fact, to insist that people who wouldn't do it on their own take a pill, whether they're criminals or, you know, um, emotionally disturbed or, you know, mentally ill? And so that, that in and of itself is an interesting moral question. Um, but I... I you know, I on on the other uh, a slightly less complicated issue is reminding people what is legal and what isn't. And, the, and and absolutely, you're correct that if you see, for example, if you are filling out an application for a mortgage, and on top of the page it indicates that perjuring yourself is illegal, you are less likely to do that. Um, and it just, it doesn't take much. It just is a reminder. Um, also, if you look at the research, often is the case that you will make, you are more likely to make wrong or immoral decisions in the afternoon when you're, you know, you're tired, you've just about had it. <laughs> and, and that, that's fascinating that, you know, so your kind of biological clock um, operates to your disadvantage in terms of the moral factor, you know, the, the, in, in the late afternoon. So all of these issues are wonderfully interesting, and some of them more provocative than others. But what's happening more and more is, you know, as, as you and I have discussed, is that these advancements, whether they're medical, scientific, technological, they're moving forward faster than we, I think, can sort out the implications. 
Well, that's interesting about our morality in the afternoon. They did some studies as well about judges and found that they're less less likely to grant clemency or uh, make decisions that may be regarded um, with uh, distaste from others. You know, mm-hmm. people are less likely to take risk yes. when they're when they're tired or hungry or any yes, of those yes. things. Well, I'm in business, I was always uh, I didn't understand why, but just instinctively, I, I always knew that. If I had a, an important meeting, I would try to schedule it in the morning with, with uh, you know, on my own behalf or with others, just because you, you're less likely to get, you know, somebody who's tired and irritable. So, <laughs> so I'm going to throw another big topic on top of all this, because I'm guessing it came up within the year afterwards. And that's sort of the purpose of life, because at one point you said, and so I am willing to imagine an improved efficient if ours was a brain that didn't suffer from hormonal, spi- hormonal spikes, banal sentimentality, emotional turbulence, calcified prejudice, absence, the messy influences of love, jealousy, and fear. There would be less possibility of overreacting and doing something stupid. Um, and, and I'm taking that completely out of context, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, and, and I'm doing it because of the, the idea of the pill, um, and that sort of slippery slope. And, I'm wondering, you know, in that area, you know, what would be lost? It also reconnects back to our discussions about technology. And I'm going to put mm-hmm. advances in, in um, air quotes because, mm-hmm. you know, it all depend on how we look at them and how we will look at them from, from the future when we look back. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, you're, the quote uh, you came from the chapter on robots and whether or not we should consider – um, programming morality in robots because these robots now are becoming more and more sophisticated. And, you know, I was not surprisingly just, you know, fairly alarmed to, 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 to understand just how sophisticated they've become. And, and that, I mean, is interesting because, of course, robots are being um, devised. And, and a robot, by the way, is simply, you know, it's a, it's a form of, you know, a computer. But the, the point is that, you know, they're are making these incredible strides in China and in Japan, and they're using robots for their own purposes. So, for example, um, in China, they have had a flow of people from the country moving to the city, and as a result, they've never had employment issues in factories. Now, frankly, that flow has just dwindled down to a, a trickle, and as a result, they, they don't have as many people working in the factory, and everything shifts. It's like changing a line in a play. It changes not only the scene, but the act, and, and, and inevitably the play itself. And so all of this then impacts the economic model, which is, you know, they're basing their economic model on manufacturing now uh, more and more. Um, and um, the point is that they're, the way they feel they can address this issue is robotically. So they are um, devising extremely sophisticated robots that can, you know, take over those factory jobs um, that are, you know, have required uh, people when in fact there are fewer and fewer people available. In in Japan, they have a slightly different approach. They're they're devising robots that are um, to to help the elderly, um, to you know, to 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 help in, in a household to actually now perform invasive surgery that you know is very minute. And um, I I can't claim 
to know specifically what direction robots are taking in America. I think it's, you know, it, it's a, one has to remember that, you know, these are publicly owned businesses that are looking for a level of profitability. And so they will make robots, you know, um, that will make money. Um, but there are also robots being used in, um, you know, with the military. And so, and here's the interesting moral, um, demarcation. So there are robots that you can control. Um, and by the way, they are absolutely filtering into police departments more and more. So there was some hideous situation. I can't remember what state, but they couldn't get to somebody who was holding people hostage. And so they sent in a robot to blow them up. And um, so you've got that. You've got robots that are, are directed by human hands, so to speak, not unlike um, the drone attacks. But then there are robots that actually can act on their own. And that's where people have become extremely uncomfortable and you know, there have been, um, you know, uh, various uh, efforts to, uh, you know, just abort this research entirely. And we can, that may or may not happen in this country, but I promise you, it's not necessarily going to be stopped in other countries. So each country will do what they're doing just as, you know, with or without the robots. Um, and, and I think that that's, again, what requires a constant vigilance and the attempt to communicate with people we, who don't necessarily share our values, but who are sharing these technological advancements. And, um, so I'm yeah, just going to pick your most basic point there. And that is of production. And I think in the book, you said something like, if we look back from uh, 2050, and I, I might be the wrong date, but sometime in the future, that 75% of jobs, and I might be exaggerating as well, but it was a really big number, will be gone because they will be taken over by a mechanism, a, a system that's yes. been mechanized or by robots. Yes. And yes. I just think about all I've read about the research done on happiness and a number of the shows I've done on what makes a life well lived. And every person and all the data shows that it's a sense of purpose yes. and of contribution and of belonging. Yes. And so I'm just wondering uh, what sort of state we have, not even thinking about, you know, the the ramifications in, in other areas, although we make great advances in medicine, but in, in warfare yes. and, and all the people you named, very, very amazing thinkers that are, are against the, the LAWs. But just in this most basic area, what kind of world are we creating and, and what does that say to what we value? Well, I'm afraid what I have found across the board is more and more a short-term thinking. And that is true with everything. Uh, you know, if you look at America, it's, it's our foreign policy. If you, frankly, it's difficult to even identify these days, but it is a very short-term um, view. Uh, and, and you see that over and over and over again. And, and so it's my personal opinion that a great deal of thought should be put into how to re-educate or how to educate people in a, in a different way so that, in fact, they can operate within a different economy because you will see more and more a shift. I mean, there have been historically these um, very impactful junctures, um, whether it's the, you know, uh, whether it's the, the, 
the revolution that the industrial revolution that occurred in America or here in the UK and 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 you know people are completely lost in every sense of the word because this huge you know profound gyration has occurred in terms of an economic model and i and i don't think that we're you know we we've addressed that at all i think it's the it's easy and, and you know listen i i have i'm removed from it i've always been able to earn a living um in ways that i find interesting um uh, you know i've worked since behind a desk since i was 20 i'm now writing books more and more but i i'm certainly not um you know, I've, I've certainly adhered to a certain work ethic, so I'm not I'm not being at all dismissive in terms of what is required. But but the fact is that the landscape has changed, and unless we can address that, uh, these promises are absolutely without any value. I mean, they're very short term. I, I you can you know open you can re release and relax all of the regulations that have to do with coal but that will not i promise you that is not the future the coal is not the future and so and i don't uh, you know i'm not dismissing the the uh, how difficult it is in terms of unemployment you know when in fact you've that's all you know but i i think that it really well, and know. there are alternatives at hand. It's not that we yes, have to wait around yes. to discover them. If you yes. look at all the jobs that are available with uh, new forms of natural uh, forms of electricity, windmills yes. and and solar, the it the the jobs are waiting to be yes, filled. Yes, yes, no, that's right. And ironically, they will be probably filled by people who aren't of our country. In other words they will be filled by people who in fact have that background or that that you know that training or that education and so i think we're we've you know we are doing our country an enormous disservice by not addressing that but you know listen we've got a uh, it's difficult we've got a political system that's extremely polarized um, you know, you vote in a, a president every four or eight years. There doesn't seem to be any consistency. And when you try to galvanize people around what I would consider to be a commonsensical issue, it's, it seems to be an enormous challenge, as evidenced by the last year or so. And um, I hope that that's not always going to be the case, because I think, frankly, that's going to be our downfall as a nation. So I want to talk a little bit about being judgmental. In your book, your son gave you some guff when you asked yes. him if, if, if you were judgmental. Um, he definitely thought you were. Um, and I want to, uh, just a point that Sam Harris, who's written a lot on morality, and, and he's in neurosciences, says there is a right and wrong answer to, to a number of questions. And he says, who are we to pretend that we know so little about human well-being that we have to be non-judgmental? Where have you come down on the idea of uh, judge, being judgmental after this year of, I, I don't know, have we decided well, yet? You were, you were still, living probably, morally or immorally, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm, I'm living as I would like to think I've always lived, but I'm slightly more um, aware of the fact that, uh, you know, the way I go about um, my life is not necessarily shared by others and that doesn't make them less moral. Um, you know, I, I use the example of, 
you know, learning mathematics. So, I mean, if, if my generation and I, you know, it, it was laborious and boring, but you learned how to multiply, you just memorized, you know, your tables, multiplication tables. If you, if you sit with somebody who hasn't done that, you know, is in their twenties or teens, they can't imagine why I, why, why would you bother doing that when all you need to do is reach for a calculator? And even in the various tests you take now, you're always allowed a calculator. So if I were to make a comparison, it would be that. It's that I'm getting to the answer. It's probably the same answer, you know, a younger person would, would, um, would come to, but I'm, I'm doing it in a different way. And, and they're slightly baffled or bemused as to why I would hold on to such a antiquated way of getting to the answer. And so I, I, you know, I just think it's an entirely different environment. And, um, uh, I have tried in my best efforts to be less, less judgmental it's it's hard. <laughs> well, we we haven't yeah. even gone to the areas where we might really apply that celebrity and pop culture and and yeah. your views of marriage and fidelity, which yes, are great yes. chapters of the book. Um, but within all of that um, and our our discussion on morality, I think there's a, a sub conversation to have about whether being moral is a hardship and full of self-sacrifice. And I thought a lot about that as I read through your book. And I think it goes to what you've just talked about, the difference between grabbing a calculator or figuring out the sums in your head. Because for me, I don't think I, I, that that being moral is a hardship or full of self-sacrifice. I think that when I make a choice that internally is in alignment with my internal compass of morality, it feels very good, and I'm not sacrificing anything. I think I'm actually gaining from it. And I think that that internal experience would be impossible from just pulling out the calculator. We don't even pull out our calculators anymore, I have to say. We pull out our telephones. <laughs> I know. Well, it has a cal- Well, see, that's also an interesting aspect of the changes today. So I, I understand what you're saying, and I would agree with you because we are like-minded that way. Um, I, I, you know, you, you also then have to accept the fact that there are times where you feel you've done the right thing and it doesn't turn out as you wish it would. And that is because life can be unfair. Um, and so, um, you know, you see this more and more, frankly, where uh, people who are making exorbitant sums of money um, are often um, trying to outwit, you know, the tax system or uh, have agreed to, you know, to actually uh, an act of malfeasance because they've already figured out what it'll cost them in fees. Um, and so, and they're, you know, in effect rewarded. Um, I think I'm hoping less and less so. I'm, I'm hoping that we see more and more people go to jail um, for a variety of things. But, but you know, certainly the gap, uh, income gap um, in the last 20 years have been, has been the, you know, the, the most um, dramatic we've seen even since the 20s of the golden age, um, in America at any rate. Um, but, you know, referring specifically to the screen um, and get, whether it's on your telephone, I mean, nine, nine hours a day of media is not an unusual amount for somebody of the current generation. And one of the, 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 the people I interviewed was this very formidable 
um, woman um, who specializes in um, neurology and and specifically in the the frontal lobes of the of the brain that have to that have been actually the most involved the last 500 years and it has to do with putting things in perspective and 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 basically moving you towards the center ground emotionally and and her point was that the brain is a very sophisticated uh, delicate mechanism that is constantly evolving and so when the brain functions are limited to fewer dimensions the brain not surprisingly begins to change because that's what it's that's what it's evolved to do and so the question then becomes what happens when you look up from the screen to interact with the world and there is no doubt that we have now fewer of the acquired skills which um with which to deal with people who don't share our views. In other words, you know, a different perspective. And um, so there's, I don't think that there's any question that technology, you know, impacts the way that we've approached other people and our, in our own lives and um, when they overlap. And uh, it also allows us to behave in ways that we, we wouldn't necessarily have previously considered. Um, and and you see this more and more. So I mean, I have recently, only because my publisher insisted on it, frankly, that I that I, I have a, a Facebook page and now a Twitter account. And what's interesting to see is that it, it, opinion moves very very quickly into anger. And I think it's because you're basically dealing with a limited number of words. You don't have that interaction where I, I, you're not seeing somebody, you're not listening to the intonation of their voice, um, you don't pick up the nuance of their body language. And so it moves very quickly into some extreme version of communication, which is very opinionated. And it, that's especially the case with Twitter, because it's basically, um, you can either enthuse endorsements or, or hurl insults, um, you know, 140 characters at a time. And, and there's absolutely no need to see uh, the effect or hear the effect that it has on the receiving end. So my, I guess my point is that a cornerstone of morality is empathy. And, you know, you brought this up before, that that is one of, you know, one is one of the hallmarks or benchmarks of morality. And empathy is a, an acquired skill many times. It's not as a, I, I don't think that you're necessarily born with it, but you acquire it and, um, and, and that comes from interacting more and more with people. I mean, some people are more sensitive than others, granted, but for the most part, if we're given a chance, we all, you know, um, understand that, you know, it's better to, be sensitive towards somebody um, than not. Um, even if you took a selfish point of view and wanted to actually get from A to B, it's just easier to do that uh, when you're more aware of who's standing in your way or who's going to help you get there. And and I think that that's uh, you know that's an important thing to remember. It's interesting because I'm coming back to the beginning of your book when one of the uh, people you were speaking with seemed giving a little bit hard time about did it really matter the distinction between ethics and morality and, and was that just semantics and were you wasting your time thinking about it? But as you speak, I'm thinking about the distinction as well between values and morality and how I think that gets muddied and confused. And when we look at what you mentioned about business and these companies and corporations that are willing to pay the fee, the fine for doing something 
something because, um, you know, it's not in the, the larger interest of society maybe, but it's in the interest of their profit motive, and that may be what they feel that is morally even, with a stretch, w- where their um, duty lies. Yeah. And so with that, I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, is, do you feel after this year of looking into morality, is there a true moral optimum? Um, does it exist on its own um, or with exceptions for circumstance? Well, God, I don't know whether I can answer that. Um, and that may be any, the answer. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I think, I mean, I think this. I think that morality is ultimately a personal choice and that um, – that it, it that it differs based on the individual and the circumstances, and but when put in a position of considering the personal benefit against potential harm to others, I think so, I think one relies on one's own moral compass to determine what is right, and I, I think that that what I. I I I believe more and more is that we will have to hold each other to account. And the world has changed profoundly just in terms of the demographics, no matter how, you know, what is promised by politicians that human churn will continue. And, um, you know, we will be usually in a tube or a subway station or, you know, it doesn't matter where on the street. And we will probably be walking among people who don't share our values. And that will happen more and more. Um, and I think that, that we, what we have to, uh, what we have to, what, what we are obliged to do is to hold each other accountable to what is acceptable and what isn't. And sometimes that has to do with circumstance and other times it has to do with absolutes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eden, for joining us on the show. And is your book available now? Can people it get is. it? It is. Yes, you can you can get it at any in a number of venues, one of which is Amazon and it also to my surprise and delight, uh they put it on um tape so it's now a, you can actually listen on to audible. it. Audible. Although it's very odd to be hearing somebody Someone else reading voice. Your book. Yeah, it's very, very odd. But at any rate that you know, that's certainly one way of, of um consuming it, so to speak. Well you definitely got us thinking. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. You've certainly got me thinking. I'm I'm not quite sure I'm gonna curl back into another book on morality, but I think that it was, it was very interesting to revisit it. 